So these words, lest we forget. Uh, I've been reflecting this week uh, quite a lot on these, actually. Probably some of you have as well. I mean, the whole notion of Remembrance Day is what that phrase suggests, that, that if we forget, if we stop remembering what happened in the world wars, not only would that dishonor the people who fought for our freedom, we would be quite likely <laughs> to repeat the same mistakes of history. The Holocaust War Memorial in Auschwitz, for example, it's there to remind the whole world of the incredible evils of racism and the horrors of the gas chambers. The Holocaust Memorial is there to stand as a warning, actually, to never forget what can happen when we view others as less than human. And I think more than ever, there needs to be memory of this horrendous event. Why? Because if you forget the past, you're bound to repeat it. Just this week, I actually had somebody who was, I think they were just a bit confused that this even was a thing. Uh, they sent me a, a website that basically was dedicated to saying that the Holocaust never happened. Uh, I couldn't believe what I was reading and seeing. I still can't wrap my head around it. I mean, the gas chambers are still there. <laughs> There's piles of shoes and photos. There's records of the torture. There's firsthand survivors of the camps. And there's even clear testimony and confession of the perpetrators of the horrendous evils. So memory, it really matters. Being honest about the past, about the evils and brokenness of the world, of the evils that can come from the human heart. Boy, that is absolutely necessary if we're to live well into the future. Remembrance Day, I find actually really humbling as well. It reminds us of the darkness and the potential for great acts of evil that lie in the human heart. It's a reminder that our world really is broken and in need of healing. And as I've been thinking about the whole notion of like what Holocaust deniers are actually doing, it's, it's like a rewriting of the story, isn't it? It's creating a new set of details and then trying to connect the dots to create an alternate reality. Now, I had just happened to believe that reality really, really matters. But we live in a world where the truth and reality are far too easily just to kind of adjusted to fit a particular agenda. Whatever that is, alternate facts, is, that's like a real phrase now. Uh, their proposed stories and ideas are transmitted today, and they can become seem to be true if you repeat them often enough to yourself. So memory matters. Forget the past and you're bound to repeat it. But creating alternate realities and false stories, that just doesn't, doesn't just happen on the larger socio-political scale. See, all of us have a story too. We have a loop tape that plays in our heads. And this story connects the dots in our minds. It helps us to create a sense of identity of who we actually are. And the stories that we tell ourselves, my, I've heard a number of kind of conversations that are in the foreground for me as of, of late. Sometimes they string ideas like this together. You'll never be good enough for your parents, your school, your boss, your significant other. Or 
Can't you see that those so-called friends, they don't really like you. They endure you at best. And you need to know that you're not really a part of the group. Or if you can't be amazing, why even try? Or I'm never going to break this bad habit. I've tried. I've failed. I'm hopeless in this. I am a failure. Now, I mean, those are pretty bleak-sounding loop tapes, but I hear those kinds of things from people on a regular basis. And, and I think we need to recognize that the stories we tell ourselves are significant. They shape how, how we sense who we are, our, our identity, and they shape our sense of hope about the future. So memory matters. Forget the past and you're bound to repeat it, and forget who you are and you'll fail to be it. We can easily lose that memory of who we are, of who God created us to be and says we are. And when we do, we begin to play the false narratives, the loop tape that's filled with lies. And when we forget that, our identity and sense of shelf begins to be squeezed out of proportion. It gets misshapen and distorted. And we begin to act in ways that are inconsistent with who God made us to be. So forget who you are and you'll actually in very practical ways, fail to live it out. And so what's the antidote? Where is the hope for the future, both on the larger world scale, but on the personal level too? I think it comes from refocusing our attention attention on the real story, to letting that narrate our lives. Today we're beginning a new series called uh, The Story of Hope. And in it, we're going to be tracing key themes that make up the biblical Plot line. I mean, if, you, if you've ever, the Bible's a big book, okay? Understatement of the year. It's hard to fit it into like an edited version on pages in less than a thousand pages. It's a big book. And so if you've ever struggled to read it, my hope is that this series will help you to connect the dots to some of those central themes so that when you do read it, you can see that really God is telling one big story. It's the story of his redeeming love, what he's trying to buy back the world for himself. And it equips us to be a part of the healing of the world. And I think it's getting at the heart of this story. That enables us to see the future, both for ourselves and God's big kind of creation plan with a real and abiding sense of hope. So let's, let's dig in this morning. We're going to look at the theme of exile and homecoming. So when I say the word home, what comes to mind for you? Just, just think about that for a few moments. Home. What images or ideas or even feelings do you associate with that word? My sense is that for many of us, it probably has to do with our most significant relationships being in right order. Like they're rich and they're deep and they're functioning as they're supposed to. For me, I, actually, I, I think of the table like where you gather to have a family meal. I mean, it, it sustains you both physically. I mean, you're, you're eating food, and so it, 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 it works on your body on that level. But the company around the table works on a social level too. It creates a sense of belonging and wholeness. Home is a theme, actually, that we see at the very, very beginning of the biblical plot line. It's, it's shown as the place where life, it flourishes fully where we experience fullness physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. Home is where things are as they should be, and we're at, at rest. 
So the biblical storyline, you see, begins with humanity in a, in a beautiful garden. God has made Adam or Adam. Adam means in Hebrew, humanity. And he gives him this wonderful job of creating and, or, or pardon me, cultivating the earth, taking this garden and bringing out the potential of the land, of creating culture is how most scholars put it. He has the job of naming animals. My first degree is in sciences. That's called taxonomy in the sciences. It's a wonderful job where you get to, to name and, and be a part of kind of creating order in the world in that way. And God is in this close relationship with humanity. God gives Adam a life partner, Eve. It's a name in Hebrew that means life. And together they are at peace and wholeness in God's good garden. They experience rest, the rest of right relatedness with God, each other, and the rest of the created order. The Bible calls this wholeness shalom or peace. This is the true home that we were made for, the kind of peace and rest we were made for. And that sounds nice, you think. Wow, a home around a table, peace and wholeness. I love that, but, but when I said home, for some of us, when we think about it a little bit longer, maybe it doesn't have such that happy ring to it after all. We, <laughs> there's the ideal, but then the realist among us start thinking, yeah, but. And then we go on to list off those things where that home ideal rarely lives up to it. Maybe you can relate to this kind of experience. I can remember coming home, you know, from university. I'd be driving home to my hometown. As I'm getting closer, there's this anticipation, almost a nostalgia that like, oh, I, you know, home is this, it's, it's got like just, you have these things, images in your head of that wholeness and you get there and you go, yeah, kind of. Like I kind of feel that, but it doesn't deliver fully on something that in my heart I'm really looking for. So there's these moments when we feel at peace and there's home, but it can be like slippery. It's like that, that sensation just goes away so quickly. And so it can't quite deliver on the promise. We feel like when we're, we're, we're wanting more home and not getting it. Or then someone we love dies. And home, in any sense of what it should be, it seems like in, impossibly far away. So even though we're made for home, this sense of home, where relationships are nurtured, human life flourishes fully, the story of the human race is one of homesickness. See, early on in the story of the human race, in, in, is described in the Bible, death and disease and violence and injustice, they break in and begin to distort and deface God's good creation and our relationships within it. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 3. It's just like three pages in on, in your Bible. If, you're, if you have your Bibles, open and follow along. And I would encourage you something. During this series, because we're going to be moving through the whole story of the Bible each week following different themes, bring your physical like paper Bible along to it. I encourage you to do that. So in the first two chapters, God has created this world and called it good. And he created humanity within it to care for it. But then look what happens in this garden home. Verse three, chapter one, or chapter three, verse one, pardon me. Now the serpent, serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in, 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 in the garden, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, actually, well, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden. 
from the trees in the garden, but God did say. So she had that memory there. She was paying attention to some extent. But God did say, you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you'll die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you, when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, to eat from this tree is to say, God, I believe I can do life without reference to you. I can live life on my own terms. I don't need your definitions of right and wrong or good or evil. To eat of this tree is to think that we have the maturity to live life apart from God and more. It's to disbelieve God's love. Like as though God was holding something back from humanity by giving them just one command. Just don't eat from that tree. That's the only thing. You're free to eat of everything else, just not that one. And the lie was God's holding back on you. He doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to to see what's really going on here. So it's to disbelieve that God really loves them. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and he ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, before they took from this tree, they were completely open. They were vulnerable with each other. Naked here doesn't just mean physically. It represents that honest, open love relationship. There was no need to distrust the other, but that is shattered, and they start sewing fig leaves together trying to figure out ways to deal with the shame that they're experiencing. You know, we still sow fig leaves, in a manner of speaking, trying to numb the pain of brokenness, broken relationships. We try to find an escape, and that can sometimes come through alcohol or substance abuse. It can come through working too hard, come from perfectionism or emotional eating or blowing up on others around us. So they sow fig leaves, try to cover their shame, and so, so do we. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where, where are you? He answered, I, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This may be the most heartbreaking moment in history. Adam once walked close with God in loving relationship, and now he's hiding, afraid. He's always been naked, open, vulnerable, totally himself with God, but now he has a new awareness that comes from that disobedience, that rebellion, and he's afraid of God's presence. There's this tear in the fabric of this relationship, and you know what, folks? The tear is still there. So at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, from God's presence. They have to leave that good home that they were made for. So the first people lost their true home, and we're still searching to find our true home. So this isn't just their story. It's ours too. It's mine. It's the story of the whole world. This is where the theme of exile begins in the biblical storyline. 
In the next chapters of Genesis, we see this continual spiral as sin and self-centeredness and ego just roll out of control. You've got a brother who kills another one. And finally, in verse 11, we see that human society becomes so full of self-exaltation and self-centeredness that by Genesis 11, humanity begins building a city and a tower. It's called the Tower of Babel, the city of Babylon. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves. This is humanity organizing itself against God and against God's ways. They are trying to build a name for themselves. Soren Kierkegaard is a Danish philosopher. He defines sin in this way. He says, sin is trying to create and form an identity. Make a name for yourself without reference to God. Name-making, self-exaltation. The word Babel itself means confusion. This is human confusion when you don't have God at the center. So here in Babylon, humanity is building a city of exploitation and violence and name-making. And Babylon, we find out in the rest of the biblical story, it comes to be the place that God's people are exiled in, in the 500s BC, but even more, it becomes to then represent humanity seeking to live life apart from God. This is not the kind of world we were made for. One writer says it like this, we were made for a place without death or parting from love, without decay and without disease and aging. So the question becomes, how can we be brought home? How can the creation be restored and healed? How can death and decay be overcome? The rest of the storyline of the Bible is all about answering that question. We're going to watch a video that lays out this exile theme. It's about four and a half minutes long, so sit back and enjoy. There's something about being home, where everything's just right. We're surrounded by people we love and trust. There's a feeling of stability and safety. And while some people get to experience this kind of home, many do not. Others might even be forced to leave their home and go live in a foreign land. We call this going into exile. Yeah, in exile, everything is disoriented. You're in the unknown. And in the story of the Bible, this is where the ancient Israelites found themselves. Conquered by Babylon, living in exile, far from their homeland. And so they had to ask themselves, how did we end up here? And is there any hope of going home? And the whole story of the Bible is designed to address those very questions. The whole story? Really? Yeah, go back to the first pages of the Bible. Where does humanity live? Okay, they live in this really sweet garden, their home. And they're there on one condition, that they trust and follow God's one command, and they don't. And so the consequence is banishment from the garden. Ah, they're sent into exile. Exactly. And so this story has been designed to set you up for Israel's story. How they were given the gift of the promised land and were able to stay there on one condition, that they be faithful to the terms of their covenant relationship with God. Uh, They didn't, and they were sent into exile. And if you still don't see the parallel between exile from the garden and exile from Israel, think about this. In Genesis, humanity's exile led up to the story about the building of what city? Oh yeah, Babylon the same place the Israelites are sent. But that's not the end of either story. In the first Babylon, God called Abraham to leave and travel to the promised land. 
And that story was designed to give hope to the Israelites currently living in the later Babylon. Now eventually, they do get to leave and travel back to their promised homeland. And when they did, it wasn't home sweet home. Oppressive empires were still ruling over them, and the people kept acting in the same corrupt ways as their ancestors. And so the biblical prophets said that exile wasn't actually over. How could they think they were still in exile when they're at home? Yeah, this is really important. In the Hebrew scriptures, Israel's Babylonian exile became an image of something more universal. It's that feeling of alienation and longing for something more, no matter where you live. Yeah, I, I can relate to this. I have a great home, but it's situated in a world scarred with pain and broken relationships, death, and tragedy, done by others, but also done by me. And so in the Bible, exile is the human condition. We all keep repeating this pattern of human corruption leading to a Babylon that we can't escape. And it doesn't matter where you live, we are all longing for a better home. Now, Israel's scriptures held out hope that one day God would send a king who would rescue the world from all of the Babylons we've created. And after many generations pass, we meet this Israelite named Jesus of Nazareth. He wandered about with no home, announcing the great restoration, that reality of home that Israel and all humanity has been looking for. Yeah, Jesus really cared about people who didn't have homes. He welcomed in the stranger. He said God's love is shown when you invite in the outcast and throw parties for people who don't have a place to belong. Jesus also claimed that Israel and all humanity had lost its way, that our self-centeredness drives us to create false homes based on status and power, and these inevitably exclude others. We live in an exile of our own making. But Jesus said the true way home is one of weakness, of service, and of forgiveness. And then Jesus went into exile alongside us to show us the true way home. Which is? Well, Jesus said he is the way. His life and self-giving love proved more powerful than humanity's failure. He opened up a pathway to our real home. And as Jesus' followers committed themselves to him, they discovered this new way of being human. They believed that the real return from exile had begun. And so they would call themselves sojourners or wanderers. Oh, right. They would say things like, the world isn't our home and we're citizens of heaven. And so Jesus' followers remain exiles as they wait for that day when Jesus returns to transform this world into a true home. So exile, as we've seen, it's, it's really the human condition. It's being far away from home. So how do they and we come home? As we saw in the video, the prophets of Israel, they knew that even though the, the Israelites had returned from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild, they were still living as exiles. Things were not yet as they should be. People were still beginning to worship things other than God. And the prophets were pointing out and saying, a new a, a rescuer needs to come and, and, and bring us home, bring that peace. And that's where Jesus comes on the scene. Born to a peasant family who were forced to travel to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem because of the Roman overlords. This is more obvious signals that the people of Israel, though they were in their land, they were not free. They were still exiles. But this Jesus, 
born in obscurity? Well, the Bible speaks of him as God the Son. That Jesus has actually always existed with God the Father. And so Jesus leaves his true home in order to become part of the human story. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus, God the Son, takes on real physical humanity, experiencing exile from his true home. And he literally wanders around homeless for at least a part of his life. We read in Matthew 8.20 that he was without a place to lay his head. And he will eventually allow himself to be executed. The violence and injustice that led us to be experiencing this exile in the first place, all of that now breaks on him at the cross. He's falsely accused and he's executed as a common criminal. But notice where he dies. This is important. Listen to the words of Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Outside the city gates, what's that about? That's about rejection and exile. The writer of Hebrews is picking up on this theme. Jesus experiences homelessness to bring us home. He experiences rejection and exile to return us from exile once and for all. And notice how. In Eden, we saw that the the woman describes that she saw the fruit and desired it and took it. This is the same pattern that you actually see worked out over and over again in the biblical storyline. For example, in 2 Samuel 13, there's this horrible story. Uh, This is in the Bible, and it's terrible. But um, Amnon sees his half-sister Tamar, sees her, desires her beautiful body, and takes her and rapes her. That same pattern I mean, that's an extreme example, I know. But if we're honest, that is what happens over and over again in history and in our story too in different kinds of ways. We see what we want, we desire it, we take and grab it for ourselves. It's self-centeredness ramped up and lived out. So how does God overcome that? Well, Jesus, God the Son, chooses another path to end our exile. When Jesus is tempted... Before the crucifixion, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knows he's about to die. And what does he pray? He says, Father, if there's any other way, like this is going to hurt like crazy. I know what this means. Take it away. I don't want to do it. If there's another way, let me out. But then he goes like this. So he sees what he could take. He says, but not what I desire. God, I want to do what you desire. My Father, I want to follow you. And he does. And he breaks that pattern of taking it for himself. In Philippians 2, 5 and, uh, to 8, it says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, you see that he is God himself in the human flesh, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. That can be translated this way as well, as something to be grasped. Jesus could have used his divine status and his power to gain honor for himself the easy way, grasping it, taking it on his terms. But he doesn't. Listen to the rest of the verse. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. Instead of using his power in self-serving ways, instead of grasping for it for himself as Adam and Eve did, instead of disobeying the word of his father as they did and we do, instead of disbelieving God's love for him and his goodness, Jesus obeys. He believes who, he, who God says he is, even to the point of death for us. Why? That's how the world is won. It's an act of self-emptying love. And we see that over and over again, too. You look at any stories. We look at Remembrance Day. How is the world won as people give up themselves for the sake of others? And God loves you like that, enough to let his own life break, to be in exile, to return us to our true home. And knowing that God loves you like that, that he would be exiled, that he would suffer rejection outside the city gates, lay his life down, that's where our true identity needs to be located and based in. Here's the take-home from this. Memory matters. Man, this story of God's deep love poured out for you and for me, that's the one that we need to set the loop tape in our head, preaching the gospel to ourselves. Because this is the true story of what God thinks of you. And ultimately, this is what forms us into the kind of people who can seek healing and the peace of the world. And this is the source of hope for all of creation, in fact. In Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, we read in 21.4 that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. The Babylon will be taken away. It will be gone. And it's living in that hope, receiving the love of God that is expressed in Jesus' death and his resurrection for us, knowing that one day he'll wipe away every tear, that's what can form us into the kind of people who actually are humble and seeking the best for others around us. And we saw it in the video, that image of the road that was stretched out. Those who place their trust in that way experience transformation. And ultimately, that leads us to hope. In John's gospel, one of the biographies written about Jesus, we reread the words of Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the way home. It's a person. It's relationship with him. And when we get on that road, we can live in a way that's not grasping for ourselves, but humbly serving others in love. But we're still exiles. We saw that demonstrated. Anyone who comes to identify with Jesus, who says, he's my Lord, I'll follow him, we are still exiles. The world in its present form, where the violence and the evil still exist and functions like Babylon, we're not yet home because God is creating a world for us that is different than this. So for those who trust Jesus, listen to the next words in that Hebrews text I was reading. It says this, let us then go outside the camp bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here, and he's talking about in the world that is now still filled with violence and greed and self-seeking and ego, for here, we don't have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that's to come. So for those who have put their trust in Jesus, your allegiance is to him. We are awaiting his return to make us, to make this into our true home. And that will mean that we will always feel to some extent out of place in this world, in the Babylon that we live in. A couple take-home points real quick as we close today. 
Christians really do have a different home. And what I mean by that is this, a different set of values and priorities that are part of the kingdom of God, the way of God. And so we will never feel completely comfortable or compatible in our current setting. We'll always be living in tension. So how do we live well then with that tension? First Peter 2, 11 and 12 says this, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. That's who we still are. We're still in exile. We're still not at our true home. What does he say though? Abstain from sinful desires. Don't take and reach for it. To grab something for your own, uh, just to, to fill a desire and a benefit for you. No, don't do that. That wages war against your very soul. Live instead. It's such godly lives among the pagans. That's people who don't know God, who don't love God, who don't want to. Um, shouldn't say they don't want to. Maybe they do, but this is people who, who aren't living for Jesus at this point. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This text requires us to resist two temptations. On the one hand, we could look at the world around us and all the problems and pressures it faces and we could just kind of back up. And instead of seeking the peace of our city, to quote Jeremiah 29, instead we just think, how can I get the most from me and mine and my family and tribe from this? So we're not, we don't actually care about the city around us. We don't care about others. Instead we just say, how can I, you know, I want to use the city to get something for me, but we don't actually care about the city. That's essentially the posture of withdrawal. And I would say that this text tells you to live among them, right? That, that we're actually engaged with our culture, working alongside of caring for, serving our city in meaningful ways. That's who Christians are meant to be. So we are to be engaged, not withdrawn into a holy huddle or a Christian subculture. That's not who we're called to be. On the other hand, there's another pressure And I think this is the one that you are feeling all the time. It's the pressure to assimilate, to just fit in, to try to minimize that that friction because you have different values if you're following Jesus. Because, you know, following Jesus can just look weird in our world today, right? It's true. It's true. But this text calls us to live faithfully, to let the way of Jesus be our way. Because it says, abstain from the sinful desires that wage war on your souls. Yeah, it actually means Stepping back and saying, no, Jesus, by, your, by your, the power of your Holy Spirit at work in me, keep me living for you and you alone. And we do it right in the midst of the watching world. So it's neither withdrawal nor assimilation. It's a third way, faithful engagement. Living in the culture, but in such a way that we actually love and serve others and live with a kind of purity that people go, wow, I want to know what you have. That looks more like the life I was made for, the home I was made for. This requires engagement, yet still remaining distinct in important ways. So here's my challenge. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're following him, my question for you is this. Are you living that faithful engagement, that third way, in the world that's in the world and yet distinct in important ways, or are you withdrawing or just assimilating? What's the tendency that you have in your life right now? In order to shift that, we need to invite Jesus to be Lord over every part of our lives, to focus on on his purposes for us, and you'll need the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. You can't do it on your own. You, You need to open yourself up to God and say, God, help me to live this way. 
So my encouragement to you, if that's you, I would encourage you to read and reread 1 Peter this week or the first chapters of Daniel. Daniel's an excellent example of someone who's engaged in the culture and yet distinct in important ways. Talk about it in your life group this week. Think about what it means to be exiles and foreigners in this world. And my question to you is this, what would change in your life if that was more a part of your identity? Now, for those who may be unsure about this whole God thing and where you're at with it, here's my challenge to you. Ask yourself, what stories are shaping my view of the world right now? And then ask yourself, are these stories true? Like, do they make sense? Do they give you hope or do they lead you to hopelessness? What are the stories that are shaping your identity? And this morning, I've tried to show that the plot line of the Bible tells us that we're made to be at home with God, that our restless hearts are made to rest in him. So my, my question would be this. Why not consider the Christian claim that God really does love you, that he has showed it by giving his life for you? I would encourage you to look into that claim seriously. Um, you can check out, we just did a series, seven parts called The God Question. They're all on our, our, either our YouTube page or our web page. And I would say that's a great starting point. You can just send me an email or give me a call and I'd love to chat more with you about your journey home. Let's pray as the worship team comes forward. God, I thank you so much that you inspired this story to be written down, this true story of how you've interacted over the history of humanity. I thank you, God, that you have, have made us for a true home, one where people love others and are humbly serving one another. And we recognize, God, that we truly do still live in exile, that home is not what home yet should be. So God, I pray that you encourage us this week not to withdraw or disengage and not to simply assimilate, but for those of us who are followers of Jesus, God, to to engage in the world with faithfulness, to serve the city for your glory, Jesus. Maybe for those, God, who are, who are not yet followers of you, but they're, they're interested, they want to know more. God, I pray that you'd be working on their hearts this morning, that you'd be speaking to them. You'd be calling them home to yourself, even. They would know that they could just simply put their trust in you, that they don't have to earn their way to you, but there's grace that is given to them. So God, I just, I pray that you would be speaking to each one of us in exactly the way you want to this morning. In your name we pray.